A Preliminary Chapter to Round the Moon by Jules Verne, a sequel to From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Preliminary Chapter Recapitulating the First Part of This Work and Serving as a Preface to the Second During the year 1860-something, the whole world was greatly excited by scientific experiment unprecedented in the annals of science. The members of the Gun Club, a circle of artillerymen formed at Baltimore after the American War, conceived the idea of putting themselves in communication with the moon, yes, with the moon, by sending to her a projectile. Their president, Barbicane, the promoter of the enterprise, having consulted the astronomers of the Cambridge Observatory upon the subject, took all necessary means to ensure the success of this extraordinary enterprise, which had been declared practicable by the majority of competent judges. After setting on foot a public subscription, which realized nearly $1,200,000, they began the gigantic work. According to the advice forwarded from the members of the observatory, the gun destined to launch the projectile had to be fixed in a country situated between the zero and twenty-eighth degrees of north or south latitude, in order to aim at the moon when at the zenith and its initiatory velocity was fixed at 12,000 yards to the second. Launched on the 1st of December, at 10 hours, 46 minutes, 40 seconds p.m., it ought to reach the moon four days after its departure, that is, on the 5th of December, at midnight precisely, at the moment of her attaining her perigee, that is, her nearest distance from the earth, which is exactly 86,410 leagues, French, or 238,833 miles mean distance, English. The principal members of the gun club, President Barbicane, Major Elphinstone, the Secretary Joseph T. Maston, and other learned men, held several meetings at which the shape and composition of the projectile were discussed, also the position and nature of the gun, and the quality and quantity of the powder to be used. It was decided, first, that the projectile should be a shell made of aluminum with a diameter of 108 inches and a thickness of 12 inches to its walls, and should weigh 19,250 pounds. Secondly, that the gun should be a columbiad cast in iron, 900 feet long, and run perpendicularly into the earth. Thirdly, that the charge should contain 400,000 pounds of gun cotton, which, giving out six billions of liters of gas in rear of the projectile, would easily carry it towards the orb of night. These questions determined President Barbicane, assisted by Murchison, the engineer, to choose a spot situated in Florida, in 27 degrees 7 minutes north latitude and 77 degrees 3 minutes west Greenwich longitude. It was on this spot, after stupendous labor, that the Columbiad was cast with full success. 
Things stood thus when an incident took place which increased the interest attached to this great enterprise a hundredfold. A Frenchman, an enthusiastic Parisian, as witty as he was bold, asked to be enclosed in the projectile, in order that he might reach the moon and reconnoiter this terrestrial satellite. The name of this intrepid adventurer was Michel Ardin. He landed in America, was received with enthusiasm, held meetings, saw himself carried in triumph, reconciled President Barbicane to his mortal enemy, Captain Nicholl, and as a token of reconciliation, persuaded them both to start with him in the projectile. The proposition being accepted, the shape of the projectile was slightly altered. It was made of a cylindro-conical form. This species of aerial car was lined with strong springs and partitions to deaden the shock of departure. It was provided with food for a year, water for some months, and gas for some days. A self-acting apparatus supplied the three travelers with air to breathe. At the same time, on one of the highest points of the Rocky Mountains, the gun club had a gigantic telescope erected, in order that they might be able to follow the course of the projectile through space. All was then ready. On the 30th November, at the hour fixed upon, from the midst of an extraordinary crowd of spectators, the departure took place, and for the first time three human beings quitted the terrestrial globe and launched into interplanetary space with almost a certainty of reaching their destination. These bold travelers, Michel Ardin, President Barbicane, and Captain Nicholl, ought to make the passage in 97 hours, 13 minutes, and 20 seconds. Consequently, their arrival on the lunar disk could not take place until the 5th December at 12 at night, at the exact moment when the moon should be full, and not on the 4th, as some badly informed journals had announced. But an unforeseen circumstance, that is, the detonation produced by the Columbiad, had the immediate effect of troubling the terrestrial atmosphere by accumulating a large quantity of vapor, a phenomenon which excited universal indignation, for the moon was hidden from the eyes of the watchers for several nights. The worthy Joseph T. Maston, the staunchest friend of the three travelers, started for the Rocky Mountains, accompanied by the Honorable J. Belfast, director of the Cambridge Observatory, and reached the station of Long's Peak, where the telescope was erected which brought the moon within an apparent distance of two leagues. The Honorable Secretary of the Gun Club wished himself to observe the vehicle of his daring friends. The accumulation of clouds in the atmosphere prevented all observations on the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th of December. Indeed, it was thought that all observations would have to be put off to the 3rd of January in the following year, for the moon entering its last quarter on the 11th would then only present an ever-decreasing portion of her disk, insufficient to allow of their following the course of the projectile. At length, to the general satisfaction, a heavy storm cleared the atmosphere on the night of the 11th and 12th December, and the moon, with half-illuminated disk, was plainly to be seen upon the black sky. That very night, a telegram was sent from the station of Long's Peak by Joseph T. Maston and Belfast, 
to the gentlemen of the Cambridge Observatory, announcing that on the 11th of December at 8 hours 47 minutes p.m., the projectile launched by the Columbiad of Stones Hill had been detected by Messrs. Belfast and Maston, that it had deviated from its course from some unknown cause and had not reached its destination, but that it had passed near enough to be retained by the lunar attraction, that its rectilinear movement had been changed to a circular one, and that following an elliptical orbit round the star of night, it had become its satellite. The telegram added that the elements of this new star had not yet been calculated, and indeed three observations made upon a star in three different positions are necessary to determine these elements. Then it showed that the distance separating the projectile from the lunar surface might be reckoned at about 2,833 miles. It ended with this double hypothesis. Either the attraction of the moon would draw it to herself, and the travelers thus attain their end, or that the projectile, held in one immutable orbit, would gravitate around the lunar disk to all eternity. With such alternatives, what would be the fate of the travelers? Certainly they had food for some time, but supposing they did succeed in their rash enterprise, how would they return? Could they ever return? Should they hear from them? These questions, debated by the most learned pens of the day, strongly engrossed the public attention. It is advisable here to make a remark which ought to be well considered by hasty observers. When a purely speculative discovery is announced to the public, it cannot be done with too much prudence. No one is obliged to discover either a planet, a comet, or a satellite, and whoever makes a mistake in such a case exposes himself justly to the derision of the mass. Far better is it to wait, and that is what the impatient Joseph T. Maston should have done before sending this telegram forth to the world, which, according to his idea, told the whole result of the enterprise. Indeed, this telegram contained two sorts of errors, as was proved eventually. First, errors of observation, concerning the distance of the projectile from the surface of the moon, for on the 11th December it was impossible to see it. And what Joseph T. Maston had seen, or thought he saw, could not have been the projectile of the Columbiad. Secondly, errors of theory on the fate in store for the said projectile, for in making it a satellite of the moon it was putting it in direct contradiction to all mechanical laws. One single hypothesis of the observers of Long's Peak could ever be realized, that which foresaw the case of the travelers, if still alive, uniting their efforts with the lunar attraction to attain the surface of the disk. Now these men, as clever as they were daring, had survived the terrible shock consequent on their departure, and it is their journey in the projectile car which is here related in its most dramatic as well as its most singular details. This recital will destroy many illusions and surmises, but it will give a true idea of the singular changes in store for such an enterprise. It will bring out the scientific instincts of Barbicane, the industrious resources of Nicol, and the audacious humor of Michel Ardin. Besides this, it will prove that their worthy friend, Joseph T. Maston, 
was wasting his time, while leaning over the gigantic telescope he watched the course of the moon through the starry space. End of chapter.